I'm going to ask for your permission to go a little above the professionally recommended 30-minute message time. They say you can't hold anyone's attention for longer than 30 minutes, so don't even waste the time. Well, I'm going to give it a shot. Lance talked for 51 minutes a couple of weeks ago, so I'm going to beat him for sure. But I want to have uh, a little permission to speak a little longer because we are right here now in the middle of the deepest, darkest wilderness that we will find in the Torah. This is as tragic a portion as one can find. It is called Shalach, Sind. It is the story of the Meraglim, the spies, the spies. Okay, that's what everyone knows it as. But it is the pronouncement of death of the generation of Israel. Your corpses will fall in this, in this wilderness, God tells them. It's a tragedy. This great generation that came out of Egypt by God's miraculous power is sentenced to death, in essence. They will not see the land. And apparently tied to this incident is also Moses not being able to see the land. Somehow we read in there that this incident prevents his, his entry. Now, that might give you pause if you're thinking ahead a little bit, because in just two portions, we're going to end up striking this rock. And that's the place at which apparently it says, because you did this, you didn't enter the land. So which one is it? Is it the spies? Is it, is it the rock? I mean, is that true? Well, we're going to continue today our discussion of Moses' trouble, find out which, why, and how it applies to us. But first, a couple of things to discuss because we have some contradictions. Some of my favorite things in the Bible to talk about, contradictions. If you want to use the word apparent contradictions because that makes you feel better, you can. But they are contradictions. To the, to the reader of the text and especially to the critic, they are contradictions. Things that say two different things. For instance, who sends the spies? Who sends the spies? Moses or God? What was their mission? Why, what, what were they there to do? Were they there to scout about or were they to spy on enemies? Which one? <clears throat> What was Moses punished for? Was he punished for this incident, the spies, or was he punished for striking the rock at Meravah? All of these questions have an answer. It's a Jewish answer. You know it already. I asked you, is it this or is it that? The answer is yes. That's the answer. Or both is the answer. But how do we trust a Bible as a reliable source of information, hello, son, daughter-in-law, that has a contradictory story. How do we trust a Bible that is saying two different things? Because it is, I promise you, and we'll tell you and look about it. We'll look at it today. But this is this question, how do we trust it, is one of the greatest joys of Torah study. Because we dig in not only to the overarching narrative of the story, which is actually very simple to read. They sent spies, they gave a bad report, God got mad, they died in the wilderness, they didn't go to Israel. That's the big picture, that's true, but there's so much more in here. Stories of faith, of choices, of leadership, of good, of bad of mistakes, of recovering from mistakes. So how do we trust, though? How do we trust two stories? Well, I've got news for you. 
The Bible is all about two stories, always. Do you know what they are? God's story and your story. The human struggle and God's plan. That's how it's been from the beginning. God knows how it should go. He tells us what to do and how to do it. And, and, and we think we like that. His plan is perfect. And then our story, the one where we actually give it a shot in living it out and following the directions and doing the things he says. And there's this constant headbutt between God's people and God. These are the stories that are told over and over in the Bible. These are the real people that are in the Bible. We read of this plan, then we resist it. And we want it. Yes, it sounds good. But actually having to trust that that's a real thing, that what God actually said is going to happen, that's when all of our weakness begins to materialize. We are containers of the divine. Have you ever considered yourself that way? Containers of the divine. Co-creators, co-laborers. And yet, he gave us this choice that is to be us. And so life is nearly every single day this or that. Choices, two ways. And this story, if you can read beneath the line, between the lines, beneath the, the outer covering of the, of the simple narrative, study it out. Think about the psychology of what's going on. You will see how much we are like these people that we read about still today. And ultimately, we'll see just how hard it was for Moses and why things ended up like this. But contradiction number one, you ready? Who sent the spies? I heard all the answers. Numbers 13. You can start with these slides, Darren. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out men for yourself to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give you, the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, each one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran at the command of the Lord. Who sent the spies? It says... God sent the spies at the command of the Lord. Lord spoke to Moses, send out men. So, yeah, right. Deuteronomy 1. All of you came to me, this is Moses talking, and said, let us send men ahead of us to explore the land for us and bring back a good report. And the plan seemed good to me, Moses said. Who sent the spies? The differences, though, are pretty easy in numbers. God told Moses. It says spy, but the thing is, that's not a good translation. That's not a good word. Spy. Let's use the word observers, scouts, tourists, as Rabbi, uh, the, the, the Rebbe of blessed memory says. Tourists. Explore. And Moses sent them at the command of the Lord. So apparently God sent them. But Deuteronomy, ah, the plan seems good to me, Moses said. You came to me and said this, and I think that sounds good. Who's missing from that conversation? God. There's no mention of Hashem. What did the people want to do? 
They wanted to go and spy out the land. They wanted to go and see what's going on out here. How should we get in to assess the power of the enemy to figure out if this comes down to it, can we win this thing? That's what they wanted to do. And as usual, we have two stories. God's story, which is a mission of sacred purpose. It is a mission of faith in his promise. And then there is man's story. Moses' story to a degree because he was the leader who approved it, but primarily that of the people. Their mission was the mundane, the natural, the lack of faith. God, I heard what you said, but I don't trust it. We're going to go in and figure it out for ourselves. Two missions. A mission without faith in God and a mission at the command of God. Now let me explain this, courtesy of Rav Yaakov Medan. There's a, there's, a, there's a Torah commentary that I would recommend, and I didn't write it down, and now I can't remember what it's called. Torah Metzion, I think. I'll figure it out. But anyway, great, great, great yeshiva leaders who give these commentaries. But here's God's desire for the mission. You ready? Two missions, God's and man's. Same mission, two missions, God's mission. The land is good, I've promised to you. Now is the time. Go in, observe the goodness, tour the land, seek out your portion, prepare to settle by tribe in your respective portion of the land. It doesn't actually say that. But we can look elsewhere in the Tanakh and we can see how this works. If we fast forward, if we fast forward to when they are actually about to go into the land in Numbers 34... We're going to find a similar thing happening here. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, These are the names of the men who shall apportion the land for you to inheritance. The priest Eleazar and Joshua, son of Nun. You shall take one leader of every tribe to apportion the land for inheritance. It lists all the names of the guys who are going to go in and scout out the land. And then it says, These were the ones whom the Lord commanded to apportion the inheritance for the Israelites in the land of Canaan. That sounds familiar, right? That's exactly what we read that God told Moses to do with these guys. Send them in. Here are all their names. They're leaders of the community. I want you to go in, check it out, and come back because this is going to happen. We also read later in Joshua. Joshua 18, when he's still, they're, they're going in and he says to the Israelites, how long will you be slack about going in and taking possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors has given you? Provide three men from each tribe. I will send them out that they may begin to go throughout the land, writing a description of it with a view to their inheritance. Then come back to me. It sounds familiar, right? It sounds a lot like what Moses was told in both cases and in our Parsha of the spies. The plan was to prepare for the inheritance of the land. That is why God said, let it be princes, let it be leaders of the people. We've come this far now. Send them in, scout it out, find your place and come back and we'll go in. The mission was to be a step of faith. The, the culmination, actually, 
that goes way back even before Passover when God said, I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is that moment from Exodus 3 before They left Egypt, they received Torah, traveled to the land of promise, and now God will deliver on his word. And the response was to be, yes, we're here. We hear you, God. We're going in. But we know it didn't go that way, right? Why? Because man had a mission. The human mission... And this is the mission that Moses approved. This is the mission in Deuteronomy 1 when Moses said, you came to me and said, let us send out spies and, you know, we'll we'll check it out, Moses. And basically what that mission said when they came to Moses and said, we think that we should do this. And this is uh, the way that we feel comfortable going into the land. And Moses said, Hey, listen, sounds good to me. Do you know what that is? That is the exact same moment, the exact same concept when Hasatan said in the garden, did God really say? Did God really say you couldn't eat that? You know why? I mean, he's, he's, he, 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 can you really trust him? They're saying, no, we really can't trust him. We need to go figure it out what is happening here. The people were fearful of what would come next. God had, listen, God had done everything up to this point. So now they're sitting on the cusp of going in. There is some potentially real responsibility that might have to come. They might have to step up. There could be a war. Are we prepared How will we fight if we don't know all the terrain? What if we don't know our enemy like Sun Tzu said? What if we don't know all the answers in advance? What route should we take to give us the greatest chance of success? You can imagine all the humans in their little things. I know what God said, but I mean, what if, what if, what about, what happens if what? And that's what Deuteronomy says, actually. Let us go in to explore the land and bring back a report regarding the route by which we should go up and the cities will come to. Listen to this. God had been leading by what up to this point? Still was. A fire and a cloud from God. Do you really think you need to figure it out? And also notice, God was very clear. I want you to send princes in. I want you to send leaders in. And all they said was, hey, let's send some dudes in. Let's send some men in there. Just go in and and spy in our own power. We can win. Now, that's a normal fear. And God wasn't spectacularly angry about that, actually. It's a fairly normal human uh, emotion. You know, Judaism is very clear. We don't assume that a miracle is going to happen to save us from a a difficult situation. You don't count on miracles. You do your part. So there's some normal things going on. But, but there's, there's this interesting little commentary from one of the sources that says, you know, Moses heard this from the people. 
that, that God had given him this direction, right? Go in, do the scouting, come back out, let's get this thing done. But then the people came and said, hey, we got another idea. What do you think about this? And Moses said, okay, well, I'll take it to God. So Moses said, hey, they want to do this. And here's the interesting commentary is that God said, Moses, I've given you the mission. If you want to allow them to do this, that is on you. And Moses says, it seemed good to me. That's why the text is very specific that the rabbis tell us and says, God says, Moses, send men for yourself. Speaking to the two missions that were happening there. That is to say, God gave Moses the choice to either allow or deny this human endeavor, this born of the desire of the people which suggests the exact opposite of what was really intended by God. Now, what would Moses be thinking? Why would he, why would he do that? Why, why, would this, why would he have to conflate what was holy with what was common? Why would he have to conflate what was faith with what was fear? Well, I want you to think back last week when we, re- we discussed the metonanim. Remember the grumblers? We talked about Moses' challenges last week. And the prophecy in the camp of Eldad, where Eldad and Midad were prophesying. You remember what they prophesied from last week? Moses won't take us in. Joshua is. Okay, all that's happening. Now also note, next week we're going to read the Torah portion, Korach. You know what Korach is? The, the, the um, what's it called? The rebellion the rebellion of Korah, it follows after the spy incident in the Torah, but guess what? Chronologically, that happened before this. Chronologically, Korah took place before. So think about what Moses is dealing with. You got the, uh, this other grumbler, and he gets him settled down, and the earth opens up and all this, but that's after the spy. So Moses is having a really, really, really bad time right now. Everything is unraveling. The grumblers, Korach, and now they come to him and say, hey, hey, we don't really trust, let's do this. So God says, I mean, Moses says, listen, I, I know how it's going to work out. I have, I have full faith, but so, you know, we'll just, we'll just let them make themselves happy. They can, they can go on in there and do that. Because I don't want to ruffle any more feathers. I've had enough of their junk for a while. So yeah, go ahead, go in, spy it out. Bad, bad, bad leadership decision. The God-ordained mission to fulfill the God side of the stories, what we say we want to happen, then was combined with the human-driven, fear-centered, faithless request to do it their way. And the result is that familiar, familiar endpoint. Did God really say, yeah, we hear it, Moses. We hear it, but we don't believe it. You don't really believe that God is going to fight for you in taking this land, do you, people? The mission was transformed. Remember during COVID when you see crosses in everyone's yard and it said faith over fear? Well, this is the opposite of that. This is fear over faith. 
And for Moses, this was the continuation of his troubles in the book of Numbers. So we answered these questions. Who sent the spies, Moses or God? Both. Who, who, what was their mission, tour or spy? Well, depends who you ask. The holy mission was a tour. The faithless mission was a spy mission. But the last question, especially the biggest if you're Moses, did Moses sin? Was Moses punished? Is this, is, is this the end of it? Did God mete out his punishment to not enter the land because of this? Well, guess what? We have a contradiction. Numbers 20 tells us it was him striking that rock twice at Meribah instead of speaking to it. Deuteronomy 32 repeats that again. It says, because both of you, he's talking to Aaron and Moses, because broke of you, both of you broke faith with me among the Israelites at the waters of Meribah in the wilderness, you're not going in. But then we go to Deuteronomy and read out of Moses' mouth what he says about why he didn't go into the land. Deuteronomy 134. When the Lord heard your words, he was wrathful and swore, not one of these, not one of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your ancestors, except Caleb. He shall see it. I will give the land on which he set foot and then on foot. And then he says, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account, saying, you also shall not enter there. Do you see the contradiction? Moses identifies this moment as the time at which God said, I'm not going into the land. And yet we see God saying it in Numbers 20, because you did this at the rock, you're not going into the land. Which is it? Well, the answer is no. Moses did not sin in this decision. Moses was not punished. He did not, he did not um, receive this punishment from God, but something did happen. That part of it was not the thing that did Moses in. It was what happened next. He failed in the aftermath of the crisis that was created. In other words, as we discussed last week, Moses was no longer able to be the leader who was going to take them in. Started with the grumblers, continues here. It culminates at the rock. But you see, it got worse it got way worse because they went in and they did this thing. And then the, the spies, the spies came back with their terrible report, right? Fear and lack of, uh, lack of faith. Do you know what happened? It spread. It's contagious. And what happened next was unimaginably bad. If the spies' report and disparaging the land of Israel was bad, what happens next is incomprehensibly bad. All of the congregation, it says, raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. That's not new. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. This is not grumbling about cucumbers and melons 
or getting some extra meat or not being able to drink water. They are saying, God, we hate you. No, thank you. We're going back to slavery and bondage. Let's get these guys out of here, get someone new, and take us back to Egypt. And it was that moment, right there, that moment, where what was required to this counter, this outrageous outrageous breakdown of faith was a courageous and equally outrageous bold move of leadership. A golden calf response. You remember it? You remember Moses at the golden calf? First thing. He comes down. He sees it. What's the first thing he does? He intercedes for the people. He says, God, God, remember Remember the promises you made to the patriarchs. Remember, I don't want you to look bad in front of Egypt. They're going to say bad things about you. He did that. Then he came into the camp. And what did he do? I'll tell you so that you can really understand the level. Moses implored the Lord, right? He interceded. And then... As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets from his hands. He broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. And then he said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put on your sword, Levites, go back and forth, kill your brother, your friend, your neighbor. And the sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and 3,000 died that day. Now that's brutal, but that needed to happen. That was the moment of crisis at which Israel was about to completely lose it. And Moses said, no! And that's what needed to happen. He needed to bring the people back. He needed to grab a hold of the reins, re-steer the ship, whatever analogy you want to use. He needed to get them back. But this time, what happened next? What did they do after they said before God, let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt? What happened was also outrageous and surprising, unbelievable. It says, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the Israelites. And as Rav Hirsch and many other rabbis suggest, it was at this point that the mantle of leadership was leaving Moses. Not forcefully. God didn't, you know, rip it off and humiliate him. He wasn't even really mad about Moses conflating the missions or even that the mission had failed. But Moses and Aaron, in essence, as they fell on their faces before these people, they, in essence, gave it up. And that hurts. Like, that's sad. That's sad to think of this. Our hero, Moses, beat down.
And it is at that pivotal moment where Eldad and Medad's prophecy from last week became a reality because then Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, Jephunneh, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and they said to all the congregation, the land that we went through as spies is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land, for they're no more than bread for us. Their protection is removed and the Lord is with us. Do not Fear them. The tearing of the clothes was more than the mourning for the bad decision. The tearing of the clothes was, no, God, not our leader. No. But somebody had to step up. Now they tried to stone Joshua and Caleb, so that didn't go so great either. But that was the moment at which the transition of power happened. Moses and Aaron are down. Joshua and Caleb rise up. Moses isn't out of the picture by any means. He, as a matter of fact, he, then God, gets, God shows up, which you never really want. When you make God mad, you don't want him to show up. It's like, when your dad gets home. <laughs> but then Moses, again, he intercedes. And what's interesting is, What's interesting is it sounds a lot like the golden calf intercession. It's the same approach. He says, no, God, no, God, don't strike them down. Don't strike them down. You have a reputation to uphold. But you see, there was no golden calf Moses after that. It was just, don't do it, God. There was no raging Moses, no grabbing the princes and the spies and saying, no, you're wrong. God is with us. He just, he, just, he just didn't rise. And for all involved, it was obvious. And that was one more step toward the rock he struck twice. So that would be about 39 years later. God didn't really have to say anything to Moses at that moment. He didn't. The silence said enough. Joshua and Caleb's uh, attempt to rally the people said enough. And I think it's interesting in Deuteronomy, Moses says, the Lord was angry with me also on your account. It's funny, actually. Moses is still saying, you did this. You did this. When that's not really true, actually. They did do this, but Moses didn't do and I've been sad for two weeks talking about Moses. You know, David, David in, in 2 Samuel, he, he's talking about Saul and he says, how dare anyone speak against the Lord's anointed? That's not what I'm doing. But it's hard. You know, it doesn't seem to be his fault, but in the end, the new leaders stepped up and Moses and Aaron laid down. Now, the application is... Well, there isn't one. This is Moses. If they can't do it, what hope do we have? Shabbat shalom. I'm kidding. There's always an application. 3,500 years later. 
these stories, these commentaries, these lessons, they still speak to us. And first of all, first of all, first lesson, you've heard it from Moses, you've heard it from Joshua, you've heard it from Caleb. Do not, what? Fear. This is the story and the consequence of fear. I read yesterday in, in one of Rabbi Sachs of Blessed Memories commentary, strong emotion, fear especially, distorts our perception. It activates the amygdala, the source of our most primal reaction, causing it to override the prefrontal cortex that allows us to think rationally about the consequences of our decisions. Fear overrides common sense. And the tourists and the, sp the spies had fear. And in and of itself, fear is unavoidable. You can't say, I will not be scared. I will not be scared. If you're scared, you're scared. But how you react is what you get to control. Their greatest mistake was not that they were fearful. It was not just that they disparaged the land and the promises. The worst thing they did was to take their fear and put it on everybody else so it ran like a cancer through the entire tribe. And they ruined it for everyone with their own fear. They were leaders, chosen specifically because they were leaders, and they should have acted like it. Application number two from Hillel and Pirkei Avot, in a place where there are no men, strive to be a man. In some sense, you know, we're all leaders of someone, and, and we all suffer at times from fears, and it's important to recognize that and to balance it with what you know to be real and what you know the inner voice is telling you. You know that inner voice, right? You can call it the evil inclination. You can do the Bugs Bunny cartoon where you got an angel here and a devil over here, but there's an inside voice that's telling you doubtful things and hateful things about yourself and all kinds of crap that you just don't need to listen to. You, you balance what is real. And these promises of God were real versus what their inner voices were telling them. There's a favorite quote I have from a, a French philosopher, Michel de Montaigne. He says this, My life has been filled with terrible misfortune." most of which never happened. That's my life at times. I am a worrier when I can't get a hold of myself. My life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. Fear is paralyzing, and it changes the course of history sometimes. You know that? This is, this is a change of course. It's interesting, Moses, where God says, you know, they say in that, in that complaint about going back to, to, to Egypt, they say our wives and our kids, they'll be taken as, as, as booty, basically. Our wives and our kids, what do you expect us to do? And so it's interesting that God says, your bodies are going to drop in the wilderness, but the kids you worried about, the kids you said I couldn't protect, the kids you said were going to be taken away and killed, they're going in, you're not. That's, a, that's tough. Fear changes 
the course of history. But I have another favorite quote. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I have another one. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But sadly, this lesson applies to Moses. Had Moses not succumbed to the people's desires, not approved the spy mission, not been fearful of the people's reaction, led when leading was necessary, he might, he might have maintained his position. I don't know that. But, but even Moses, even Moses on some level fell victim to the fear. And listen, there are times when you make the hard choice to go against the grain and do what must be done. Now, this is an addition that's not in my notes. But yesterday, this monumental thing happened in the United States after 50 years. Monumental. And in the face of intimidation, fear, threats, assassination attempts. Just take, take abortion out of the equation for a second. The justices of the Supreme Court interpreted the Constitution, which is their job to do. They interpreted the Constitution and arrived at a decision that puts the right to abortion back in the hands of states. It's a victory for pro-life, certainly it is. It doesn't eradicate abortion. But that's not even what I want to talk about. The point is, these people, these justices, who just were doing the right thing, which is interpreting the law. I can tell you this, and I, I might let the cat out of the bag here, but I lean a little conservative I can tell you that the Constitution says that you can keep and bear arms. The Constitution does not say that you are guaranteed that you can have an abortion. So over the past couple of weeks, these justices have interpreted the Constitution, which is their job. And unbelievably have been threatened, challenged, abused, hated, people outside their homes at all hours of the night. But guess what? They did the thing they had to do because they're not going to be controlled by anyone's fear. And that's strong. And that's how we need to be. Because when you don't stand up, you get knocked down and you end up laying down in front of people. But the point is, in the face of fear for ourselves, for our families, for whatever it is, you do what you must do in a place where there are no men. Be a man or a woman of God. And someone who stands for what is right. And the last thing is this. Mistakes are not always failures. 
We spent the last two weeks talking about mistakes Moses made. Is Moses a failure? <laughs> Remember the burning bush when Moses said, I, 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 not only do I not want to do this, I can't do this. But he did it. He did it. He overcame fear. He led where leading was needed. He led them out of Egypt. He led them to Mount Sinai. He went up and talked to God. He saved them multiple times. He led them through the wilderness. And even after this incident, he led them for another nearly 40 years. And he brought them to the, generation, to the, the next generation, to the doorstep of the land. He was God's man. He was a hero, the people's hero. And in some ways, still today, very much, very separated from him, he's still my hero. And a hero of Judaism. He served his role. Mistakes and all. And through it, he inspires the next leader, Joshua, and the rest of history. And Moses is still teaching us. He's still teaching us. There are things you've failed at, failed in, missed opportunities, things you won't get to do again because you made a mistake and it took a chance from you that you won't have again. Don't pull, don't pull what they said and say, oh, now I'm going to, now I'm going to fix it. Now we're going to go into the land. That didn't work out. Sometimes you make mistakes and you miss an opportunity and you can't get it back. But you keep on keeping on because you never know how your mistakes may inspire or teach. And you never know what story God is writing through you, mistakes and all. God is writing a story through you, mistakes and all. Listen to him. Have faith. Fear not. Walk forward. That's what Moses did. You know how the story ends. Yeah, he doesn't go into the land. But Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyesight was not dim, nor had his vigor left him. Whatever happened in these moments where he, he, he had, a, had a failure, man, he got up. And he finished strong. And that's what we must always do. Sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Why? Because Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants, all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The truth is, Moses had some trouble, but Moses is Awesome. Awesome. It doesn't take away from his greatness. And your mistakes don't have to either. His humanity, his imperfection, his humility, 
is what makes the story all the better. So may God help us to learn from Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher. Shabbat Shalom.